Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Mark chapter 10. We're going to do verses 32 through 45. Context is Jesus is in his Perean ministry. He's just finished saying, Suffer the little children to come unto me when the disciples rebuke the children, probably for making too much noise. And after that, the rich young ruler came up and knelt before Jesus, and Jesus said, you got to give everything up if you're going to follow me. They're in Perea, east of the Jordan. They're heading to Jerusalem. This is in the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Starting in Mark 10, verses 32 through 34, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. All right, we have two parallel versions of this story. One is in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28, and one is in Luke, chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. Most of the detail, however, is in Mark. We don't pick up, we pick up a little bit of stuff in Luke, not much in Matthew at all. So I'll do, I will go through Mark and I'll pop on over to Luke when I want to add a few comments that Luke adds. All right, they were on the road, that would be the disciples and Jesus, they were astonished. What were they astonished about? They were astonished about how he cheerfully and readily went on to Jerusalem to a certain death. So says John Gill and Adam Clark, and I think that's what, what he indeed meant. Because Jesus had a lot of enemies in Jerusalem. They were all trying to kill him. He had just had a brief foray into Jerusalem in which it was quite obvious the Pharisees were trying to kill him. And so he's cheerfully going right back to Jerusalem, just like he's predicted. This is the fourth time, by the way, when he says, I'm going to die and be resurrected. This is the fourth time in a relatively short period of time that he's done that. For example, Caesarea Philippi in Mark 8, Matthew 16, and Luke 9, he says, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem, be crucified and resurrected. Coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, shortly thereafter the trip to Caesarea Philippi, he says the same thing. That's in Mark 9 and Matthew 17. Then, after they leave the Mount of Transfiguration and walk back down from Caesarea Philippi, back down to Galilee, probably to Capernaum, he tells them again. That's the third time, Mark 9 and Matthew 17, and Luke 9 has that story. So now, this is the fourth time. Why did he have to tell these blockheaded disciples four times? They needed to be prepared for such an awful event, and they were not prepared for it, as the subsequent story of James and John fantasizing about what positions they were going to have in the Messianic kingdom. They didn't understand that that Messianic kingdom was not going to be established for a while, and when it was established, it was going to be a spiritual kingdom, i.e. the church. It was not going to be a political, a political military kingdom full of earthly glory. They just didn't understand, and Jesus kept telling them over and over again, Look, I am going to die, disciples. Get ready for it. You think the rich young ruler had to give up everything? Guess what? You're going to have to give up everything, too. And you're going to get persecuted from synagogue to synagogue, as we'll see shortly. He tells them that shortly. Now, this idea of dying and rising again has an idea in Old Testament. This idea is an Old Testament prophecy, according to Adam Clark in Hosea 6, verse 2. He will revive us after two days, and on the third day he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. That sounds like a messianic prediction to me prediction about Jesus coming. Now, I've given you the three times he said it, he predicted that he was going to be killed before. 
This idea actually is scattered all throughout the Gospels. So let me just pour it on here and give you some more examples. Luke 5.35, But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. They will fast in those days. Groom will be taken away. That's when he was explaining why his disciples didn't fast and John the Baptist's disciples did fast. The groom will be taken away. Luke 9.22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and raised again on the third day. This is not a parallel passage to our current passage. This is actually one of the times when he was coming down from the Mount of Transfigurations when, he, when Luke said, when, when Jesus says, let these words sink in, guys. So that's actually a repeat here. But here's another example in Luke 12, verse 50. This is not a parallel passage, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how it consumes me until it is finished. Luke 13, verses 32 through 33. He said to them, go tell that fox, as Herod, look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will complete my work. Well, that's a little bit veiled. But we go on to verse 33 in Luke 13. Yet I must travel today, tomorrow, and the next day, because it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm a prophet, and where do all prophets get killed? It's not possible for them to get killed anywhere but in Jerusalem, and I am going to Jerusalem. Luke 18, verse 32, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, insulted, spit on. Luke 24, verse 7, the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. Matthew 16, 21, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples. That's, uh, that's the same thing with the Mount of Transfiguration. That's a repeat. But you see that this idea of him being killed it was scattered all throughout his teaching, and, it, and the disciples just could not grasp it. They could not understand it. Now, Matthew when Jesus Jesus predicts his death in Matthew, he mentions crucified, not just killed, but crucified, which, of course, means the Romans were going to be doing the execution. Jesus had a little bit of divine foreknowledge there. Oh, it might not have been. It might have been human inference because you could, since the Jews didn't have capital punishment, Jesus said, well, I'm going to get, to, I'm going to get the Pharisees and the scribes are going to get me, but it's obvious they're going to have to turn me over to the Romans to kill me, to crucify me. But imagine the effect that that little word had on the disciples. Crucify me? That's a cruel and shameful death administered to slaves and the worst criminals. How to reconcile that with the Messiah's kingdom that these disciples were expecting? Now, I told you I'd tell you approximately where Jesus was traveling. Now, the harmonists, of course, disagree a lot of times on the details of this. This is just a general idea. I'm, I'm mainly relying on Robertson, A.T. Robertson's harmony. All right, so he's already come down to Jerusalem and Mark skipped all that and all that Jerusalem ministry. Then he crossed back over into Priya and that's where he is now and that's what we're talking about. Then in Matthew 19 we see he departed from, excuse me, in John 11 verse 44 it says Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, that's when he left Jerusalem, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim and I think that the town is lost. They can't, they, the archaeologists don't know where it is. But it's probably a town somewhere over there in Perea. He stayed there with his disciples. And then, Robertson says he left there, crossed back over the Jordan River, but didn't go to Jerusalem, but went up into Galilee and Samaria for a little bit. Went up into Samaria to the, to the edge, the boundary of Galilee, the southern boundary of Galilee. So he did some ministry in Samaria, went to Jericho, then came back down to Jerusalem for Passion Week when he was crucified. So that's roughly what Jesus has done here. And we're in Perea now, the Perean ministry. Why did Jesus take the disciples aside privately to predict his passion? Here's some ideas that John Gill presents. Perhaps they would become discouraged and desert him if he said, 
if if you told the crowd, hey, I'm getting ready to die, maybe all the crowd would have left, and then of course they would miss out on the kingdom. Maybe the crowd, once they heard that Jesus was planning on getting himself crucified by the Jews, maybe the crowd would take measures to prevent that, stop him from being crucified, and this would screw up the plan of the redemption of the whole human race from sin. But at any rate, Jesus told them privately. Now, Jesus says in Matthew, in the Matthew passage in Matthew 20, verse 18, he says, he will be handed over. Now, that sounds like betrayed. I wonder if Judas realized when he heard that that he would be the betrayer. He must have been thinking about it from the back then, I, I speculate. He was handed over, all right. The Jews handed him over to the Romans. John 18, verse 35 says this, and Pilate is speaking. I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? So yes, Jesus was handed over by the, to the Jews to the Romans. And Jesus predicts also not only his death, but the mocking that went along with it, the, the scourging, the spitting, if you put the three parallel passages together, the mocking, the spitting, the scourging, and the killing, and all, he predicted it all. The spitting actually took place, he was correct, because they actually spit on him. They mocked him. How did they mock him? This is in Luke 23:11. Then Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt. Remember, Jesus was handed over to Pilate. He was also handed, he was handed over to Herod Antipas first, who was in town, and then from Herod Antipas handed him back over to Pilate. When he was with Herod, it says the soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in a brilliant robe, and sent him back to Pilate. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a reed as a fake scepter in his hands. They bowed to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. So yeah, they mocked him. And then they condemned him, Mark 14:64. This is when the high priest is speaking, one of the high priests. You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they, the Sanhedrin, all condemned him to be deserving of death. So, yeah, they condemned him just like Jesus predicted in advance. Notice that Jesus specifically predicted the handing over to the chief priests and scribes. That's implied that the, that the, the, the Jewish people who arrested him handed him over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. That was the first part of his trial. Then they, the chief priests and scribes, will hand him, Jesus, over to the Gentiles. I mean, then the Romans worked him over to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. So Jesus predicted his persecution by the Jews and the Romans on his way to Jerusalem from Perea in this passage. And so there you have the two major divisions of the human race combining to kill Jesus, the Jews and the Gentiles. When I say the Jews, I mean the scribes and the Pharisees mainly. Of course, the Sadducees were in, in on it also. I mentioned that Jesus predicted that he would be spit upon, and that was actually fulfilled too, Mark 15:19. They kept hitting, hitting him on the head with a reed and spitting on him. Getting down on the knees, they were paying him homage. That's the Roman soldiers. I forgot whether it was before Herod or for, before Pilate. That's in Mark 15:19. The Roman soldiers spit on him. Isaiah 56, 50, verse 6, predict this, predicted this. I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. So Isaiah predicted it and Jesus predicted it. Now, in the prediction of the condemnation and crucifixion, he also mentions after three days I'm going to rise again. Why did, he do, why did he mention that? All three of those previous predictions of his death that I gave you also included predictions of his resurrection. Why would he mention his resurrection? Because he needed to encourage and comfort his disciples. They certainly would need it. You recall that the crucifixion of Jesus, they all ran but one. Now in Luke 18, verses 
31, a parallel passage, it says, Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man. Now remember, Son of Man is a messianic title. Jesus is calling himself the Messiah here as he's talking about getting crucified and spit on and mocked. But he was the Messiah, the Son of Man. And he says, everything that is written through the prophets. Well, where is that? Well, there's lots of Messianic prophecies. I'm, we can't go through them all. But Psalm 22 is a famous one. Isaiah, I've already quoted Isaiah 53. There's another famous passage about the suffering servants. His face was uncomely beaten. He gave his back to bear the stripes. He bore our iniquities. Zechariah 13:7 says, Sword awake against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will also turn my hand against the little one. So lots and lots and lots of Messianic scriptures. Jesus said it is written. He was constantly appealing to the Old Testament scriptures when he was talking about his life because he wanted to show that he fulfilled those scriptures. Just like on the road to Emmaus. Have you not read the scriptures? Luke adds... A paragraph that's not in the other parallel passages, so we'll read that. Luke 18:34 says this, They understood none of these things. Well, that's not surprising, is it not? This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Was hidden is kind of a polite, passive way of saying it. it. means they were too obtuse to see it. It does sound like when it says was hidden, it's like God did it, but we, we're not going to go there. It was just they, they didn't understand. They were thinking of the glory of the Messianic kingdom. They could not imagine a crucified Messiah. And this, this attitude made their subsequent preaching of the gospel even more extraordinary than it was. Because before, they were thinking messianic kingdom. Oh my gosh, Jesus is crucified. We're dead. They go hold up. They're defeated. They're discouraged. They're devastated. And then all of a sudden, they're out there risking their lives preaching the gospel. Why? Because they had seen the risen Lord. You, you see, uh, you catch a vision of the risen Lord, you'll do a lot of stuff that you didn't have the guts to do beforehand. Now we're going to turn to the story of James and John and how they wanted to be big shots in the kingdom of heaven. So I'll drop down in Mark chapter 10 to verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. Ooh, nice and polite. Now, first of all, we, we Luke drops out of the story here. We only have two parallels now, one in Mark and one in Matthew. The one in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 says this, Then came to him the mother of the sons of Zebedee with her sons, and she said, I want to ask something. And Mark says, James and John asked direct. Well, we need to reconcile that. It's not very difficult to do. Adam Clark, in fact, does it for us. Well, actually, there's several ways you can reconcile it. One is the NIV study Bible's way. that All three made the request together, and then Mark picks up on one, and Matthew picks up on Mark picks up on James and John, the sons, and Matthew picks up on the mother asking. Well, that's the easiest way to reconcile it. Adam Clark's got another way to reconcile it. He says that that the mother came first, turned the question, asked Jesus, and then once Jesus understood what the request was, he then turns to James and John and says, uh, what's going on here? And James and John said, we want to sit at your right hand and your left. That's another good way to reconcile it. So, But that's not hard to reconcile. All right. Now, by the way, the, the James and John, the son of Zebedee, their mother, her name was Salome, most probably. Gill and Clark say so. Uh, you have to go to the resurrection appearance, excuse me, the crucifixion uh, uh, narratives. Matthew 20 says, 27 says that Mary Magdalene was there, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, that's the elder Mary was there, and the mother of Zebedee's sons were there. Then we go to Mark 15:40. It says the same thing, except instead of saying Mary, the mother of Zebedee's sons, it says Salome, 
So you make the substitution, you get Salome as the mother of Zebedee's sons. Again, that's not airtight, but it's pretty probable. All right, so we'll call her Salome. She's called the mother of the sons of Zebedee, but not the wife of Zebedee, which makes John Gill thinks that Zebedee is dead at this time or that Zebedee never followed Christ at this time, but his wife did. She was with the traveling band of apostles at the time. Now, it's very interesting. This is already, James and John have already gone through this before. The disciples were walking from the Mount of Transfiguration to Capernaum in Matthew 18 and Mark 9, and they were grumbling about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And I believe they were in the house at Capernaum, and Jesus held up a little child and stood him up and said, you got to be like a little child before you come into the kingdom. That was the same thing, the same two disciples, James and John. Now, they were two of the original three apostles that were the closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. But James and John, they just really had this thing about they wanted to be the big shot. Jesus has already told them, look, you got to be like a little child. It apparently didn't sink in. Just like they didn't understand his death and resurrection, they didn't understand you got to be like a child if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, some people speculate that because they had just been so recently reproved up there in Galilee, now that they're down in Perea, they were scared to ask Jesus straight, so they got the mother to do that dirty work for them. Jameson Fawcett and Brown speculates that. It's not only about... The, when Jesus held up the children and said, you got to be like a child in Capernaum, once they got down to Perea, he also had rebuked the disciples for not accepting the, the, the little children. After the story of the rich young ruler, Jesus said, hey, the first going to be last, the last is going to be first. Now, hey, you guys want to be first again. Well, you know, if you want to be first, that means you're going to be last. Why would you want to do that? These disciples amaze me. Now, here's some options as to what is the ground of Salome's request for her sons. Well, first of all, she had constantly followed and attended Jesus. Her sons were two of Jesus' favorite disciples. Some people speculate that she perhaps was Joseph's sister, Jesus' father, Joseph's sister. I'm not so sure about that. But it could be that she's appealing to a little bit of nepotism. Also, she had just heard Jesus talk about the giving, the rule, giving the rule of the 12 tribes to the 12 disciples. That's when Peter said, well, we've given everything up. What's going to be in it be, be for us? And Jesus said, hey, you're going to be ruling everything. And I said that was in the Messianic age, the church age. And this time now you will get lands and relatives and persecutions in this age, in the Messianic age. And you guys are going to be ruling. Not you three particular guys, but the 12 tribes. So James and John knew that they were going to be big shots with the other nine, but they wanted to be above the other nine. A little bit of ecclesiastical politics in the original apostolic band. It's kind of disgusting, really, if you think about it. Let's move on to Mark 10, verse 36 through 38. What do you want me to do for you? He, Jesus, asked them, asked James and John. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Now, right and left, that means that's the place of power, and that's the place of glory in any earthly kingdom's kingdom. That's just the way they did things back then. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now notice the present tense. Are you able to drink the cup I drink right now? Or to drink the cup I am drinking? Or to be baptized with the baptism I am right now in the present being baptized with? In other words, his crucifixion is so close now. He's not using the future tense. He's talking about the present tense. And he says, you guys ready for this? No, they weren't ready for it. They just wanted glory. Drink the cup I drink is a Hebrewism, a Jewish expression for share the same fate of. Can you get killed like I'm getting ready to be killed? Because they didn't understand that. Four times they were taught directly, not to mention miscellaneous uh, miscellaneous 
uh, how can I say it, uh, inferences that Jesus had given or implications that Jesus had given that he was going to be killed. They didn't understand that, and so he's asking them straight out, hey, you you able to die like I'm getting ready to die? The bapt- Can you undergo my baptism is uh, in Mark and not in Matthew. Drink the cup is in both. It's the same thing. Baptized with suffering like Jesus was baptized with suffering or drink the cup of suffering. Now, John Gill says that Jesus knew their corrupt hearts as soon as he heard the question. Uh, heard, heard, not heard the question, but heard their request that they sit on the right hand and the left hand of God. But he didn't immediately upbraid them. Jesus didn't. He gently tried to instruct them on the truth of what was coming. And Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown make the point that when Jesus asked, what do you want? He wanted the unseemly petition uttered before all so that they could all see what was going on. And they did because they got angry at James and John. So Jesus wanted this public, I say publicly, he wanted it to be voiced amongst all the apostles so there'd be no misunderstanding. Now the right hand of a, of a king was for the Jews the point of great honor and affection. So once, I mean, if James and John had gotten approved to sit on the right and left of Jesus, the next question would have been, well, who's going to get to sit on your right hand, James or John? And then they'd have a good fight over that too. Fighting for position, fighting for place. First Kings 2.19, so Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him about Adonijah. The king stood up to greet her, bowed to her, sat down on his throne, and had a throne place for the king's mother. So she sat down at his right hand. So Bathsheba sat at the right hand of David because that's the right that's the that's the place of honor in the ancient Near East. The same for Egyptians and Romans also, not just for the Jews. Now the request really does seem presumptuous to sit at Jesus' right hand or his left hand, but at meals John either leaned on Jesus' breast or sat next to him because we see the story of the Last Supper. We see that Jesus was, John was whispering in Jesus' ears. They were discussing about Judas. So John sat next to him. And, of course, James was one of the favorite three apostles, just like John was. I mean, it was a certain logic to it, but it was still arrogant. They asked to sit in his right and his left hand in his kingdom. Mark has his glory. So they... You put the synoptics together, and you and you see that the kingdom was expected to be glorious. That's what Mark is expecting, a glorious kingdom on earth. Not glory in heaven, but on earth. And when one more point we need to make about Salome and James and John making this request, they left Peter out. He was one of the favorite three also, but somehow he didn't get to sit on the right hand and the left in this scheme of Salome and sons. Now, Jesus said, I don't know, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm able to drink? And how did they respond? They said, we're able Oh, really? They ran like scared puppy dogs when the crucifixion occurred. They really, really, really didn't know. They didn't have a clue what was about to happen to Jesus. And we are able, they said. Well, those are famous last words. Now, of the two, James and John's the son of Zebedee, James hightailed it out of the area. <laughs> he he went into hiding at the crucifixion. Now, John did saw, he did witness the resurrection and took charge of Mary. We got to hand that to him. But James didn't. He left. Now, of course, eventually James got killed. He got run through by the sword by Herod Antipas in Acts chapter 12. So after Pentecost, he was able to drink Jesus' cup and to be baptized with what Jesus was baptized with. But beforehand, uh uh-uh, not a chance. And when John also proved that he was able to experience the cup of, drink the cup of suffering and to be baptized with Jesus' suffering, he ended up in exile on the Isle of Patmos, arrested by the Roman government. Matthew 20, verse 23. Well, excuse me. Let me let me go to Mark 10, verse 39 through 45. 
We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. He was predicting just what I said. James is going to be killed. John's going to be sent into exile at Patmos. James killed by Herod, Antipas, Acts 12, verse 1. Verse 40, but to sit at my right or left hand, Jesus continues, continues, is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those who it has been prepared for. In other words, that's up to God the Father, not me. So don't ask me for something I, I'm not qualified to give. I can't. That's up to God the Father. Jesus, Jesus was always submissive to the Father. When the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John, for obvious reasons. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high positions exercise power over them. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So here is leadership in the kingdom again. I call it leadership as children and slaves. Jesus in another place, previously up in Galilee, in Capernaum, he said that you've got to be like a little child. So that's leadership as a child. And here he's talking about leadership as a slave. Leadership as a child and a slave. That's what you need to be. You don't need to be talking about sitting at the king's right hand. You need to be thinking about serving, getting down under people, down low where other people are, and helping them, serving them. Let's look a little closer at Jesus' statement that to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. Instead, it belongs to those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, the ancient Jewish rabbis use that text to argue against Jesus' divinity. They say, see there, he's not equal with the Father. He can't even decide who's going to sit on his right hand and his left in the in heaven. Well, Adam Clark has got a very interesting answer to that Jewish rabbinic claim that Jesus didn't have divine authority because he wasn't divine. Basically, he says that Jesus is saying that he alone does not have the right to assign seats. He can do it with God the Father, but he can't do it by himself. And Also, Clark points out that Jesus never outright denied James and John their seats. For all we know, they might still be up there at the right hand of Jesus. Could be. Don't know. But let me read you his quote. Basically, let me just tell you how Clark translates that. He says we should translate it this way. But to sit on my right and on my left hand is not mine to give, save to them for whom it is prepared. In other words, it's been prepared by God the Father and, and, and Jesus the Son and and so don't ask me because whoever it's been decided is going to sit at my right hand and the left hand by God the Father and by me, that's who's going to be sitting there. So according to Adam Clark, Jesus didn't give away his divine authority to pick who's left and who's right. Let me let me go on with this quote here. Let me just I'm, let me start at a different place. It seems this quote this this interpretation that Jesus has given away his authority. It seems to make our Lord repudiate the right to assign to each of his people his place in the kingdom of glory, a thing which he nowhere else does, but rather the contrary. It is true that he says that their place is prepared for them by his Father, but that is true of their admission to heaven at all, and yet from his great white throne, throne, Jesus will himself adjudicate the kingdom and authoritatively invite into it those on his right hand, calling them the blessed of his Father. So little inconsistency is there between the eternal choice of them by his Father and that public adjudication of them, not only to heaven in general, but each to his own position and in it, which all Scripture assigns to Christ. 
The true rendering, then, of this clause, we take it as this, but to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, save to them for whom it is prepared. When, therefore, he says, it is not mine to give, the meaning is, I cannot give it as a favor to whomsoever I please, or on a principle of favoritism. It belongs exclusively to those for whom it is prepared. And if this be his meaning, it will be seen how far our Lord is from disclaiming the right to assign to each his proper place in his kingdom. That, on the contrary, he expressly asserts it, merely announcing that the principle of distribution is quite different from what these petitioners supposed. Our Lord, it will be observed, does not deny the petition of James and John, or say that they shall not occupy the place in his kingdom which they now improperly sought, for all we know that may be their true place. All we are sure of is that their asking it was displeasing to him to whom all judgment is committed, and so was not fitted to gain their object, but just the reverse. So what Clark is saying is that Jesus has every right to assign who's going to sit on the right or the left, but that distribution of authoritative seats is done in conjunction with God the Father, and he has not given up his authority to adjudicate his kingdom. That makes a lot of sense to me. Now, when the ten disciples heard that James and John are trying to climb up in the kingdom at their expense, they became indignant with the two brothers. Well, how did they hear this? Well, Jesus could have answered James and John and Salome out loud so all could hear. I suspect that's exactly what happened. He's another teaching moment. They all needed to hear it, not just James and John. They needed to quit fighting about who was going to be number one. Now, the, the other ten disciples were indignant with the two brothers, but they wanted the same thing as James and John did. So were they indignant for right reasons, for noble reasons? No, they were indignant because they thought they were getting cut out of temporal rewards. They were just as selfish and vainglorious as James and John was. But James Fawcett Brown points out that, however, it is difficult to blame them for getting upset given the audacity of what James and John did. So maybe they had a right to get upset, but they were getting upset for the same reasons. You know, if they were really humble, they would have said, oh, you, can, you can sit at his right hand and left hand. I don't care. I just want to serve the brethren that had the proper Christian attitude. They might have gotten into a huge quarrel and Jesus not stopped them. Can you see that? The leaders of the of the kingdom in the messianic age, the 12 sitting on the thrones of the 12 tribes of Israel are trying to beat each other's head in over who's going to be the big shot. Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them and the men of high position exercise power over them. Now, the home, this is Holman Christian Study Bible. It says that leaders of the Gentiles, that's the typical political leaders, kings of the Gentiles, they dominate them. And men of high position exercise power over them. Now, how we interpret this verse has a lot of implications for how you do church government. And I'll show you how this works. If Jesus is complaining about, well, I guess I should go on before I get, let me point out, uh, reread for you in Mark what Jesus said. He says, the Gentiles dominate, they exercise power over their subjects, but it must not be like that among you. In other words, he's using this as a reverse object lesson. He's saying, don't do it like the Gentiles are doing it. Well, that means in order to know how leadership is to be in the kingdom of God in the church, we've got to know how the Gentiles do it in the secular world, and then we need to do it just like they, in the opposite way, that the Gentiles do it. Okay, well then what does it mean? The Gentiles dominate? Does that mean that they rule unjustly and tyrannically, and therefore the disciples need to exercise authority, but exercise it benevolently and with compassion and so forth? Well, that's a reasonable interpretation, but I would suggest to you that that's not 
what Jesus meant when he said, he said, don't dominate, the Gentiles dominate their people, but he also said they exercise power, exercise authority over them. It's not to be so with you. That means it's not to be that you exercise authority. It doesn't say exercise unjust authority. It doesn't say you're not supposed to exercise tyrannical authority. It just says don't exercise authority, which means, in my humble opinion, and I think I can prove this, that leadership in the Church of Christ is to be by example only with no command authority available to church leadership, with no positional authority, a status authority, I'll call it. I did a whole subject of this on a, in a video in my house church playlist on YouTube. You might want to check that out. I go into a lot of detail on this. I mean, for example, Peter in, what is it, First Peter 5 says that you're supposed to be examples to the flock. Examples. And I know there's a place in Hebrews 13, when you get into the Greek in Hebrews 13, when it says, obey them that have the rule over you, that is the middle voice of pastuo, which means be persuaded by those who have authority over you. It gives you a whole different flavor, does it not? Unfortunately, the hierarchical medieval, almost medieval translation of the King James, which emphasizes hierarchy so much, has it, you know, you're supposed to bow and scrape before those who have authority over you. No. That's not the way it's supposed to be. A leader is supposed to lead by his godly character, not by power and authority. You do this because I'm your pastor and you need to obey me. Jesus finishes up this teaching in verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. For even the Son of Man. In other words, you guys, you know, you're leaders. You're, you're sitting on the twelve, on the thrones of the twelve tribes of Israel and you're administering the kingdom of God and you're supposed to serve. Well, look, I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of Man. And even I are serving. So it's an a fortiori argument. If even I am serving and I'm God, then what does that mean that you should do who are not God, but who are mere human beings? You're supposed to serve. And Jesus not only served, he actually gave his life. He came to give his life. He ransomed for many. Again, this is a prediction. He hadn't done it yet. He's going to give his life for the for the sinners of the world. Now, redemption, a ransom is a redemption price. The Greek word for ransom was the word that was commonly used to refer to the price paid to redeem a slave. So I think redemption price sounds better than ransom. Ransom always sounds like paying off a kidnapper to me. A ransom for many, that Greek word anti, means instead of, a ransom instead of many. In other words, instead of you and me dying, Jesus died instead. So what does this say about hierarchical leadership to lead like a servant? Who has the least authority in a household? A child. Jesus doesn't mention children here, but he does in Luke 22 in a different passage, non-parallel passage. You're supposed to lead like a child. A child has zero authority in the household. How, much, how about a slave? How much authority does a slave have in a household? Zero. And Jesus said that's how you're supposed to lead. You're supposed to serve. And by the way, there's nothing more fun than serving other people. It's the most rewarding thing in the world. It's not like it's a, a chore. If we don't have authority over one another, what does that say for church government? Think of how many churches you know that have senior pastors, junior pastors, associate pastors, pastors in waiting, you know, just pastor, pastor, pastor this, elders, deacons, capital E, capital D, all sorts of hierarchies everywhere. Mission pastors, teaching pastors, ruling pastors, fire baptized pastors. I mean, you have pastors everywhere. That's not the way it's supposed to be in the kingdom. It's supposed to be equal authority, but some people are less equal or, or more godly and more spiritual and that's where they get their leadership ability from not because they have more power but because they have more character and more knowledge of the lord and more experience with the lord and more knowledge of the word and so forth and so on 
And that, that authority will naturally be recognized by people who are not being lorded over and who are not being whipped like their sheep being led to the slaughter. So that means church government is going to be done by consensus. Everybody's got to agree to it because nobody can force anybody to do something else. Everybody agrees to it consensually, and that is the way to do church government. People are buying to those decisions much, much better. Now notice that Jesus said that he is going to give his life a ransom for many. In verse 45, Mark chapter 10, a ransom for how many? For many. Now, that's a good counterbalance to the verse, straight is the gate and narrow is the way. We always hear people say, well, you know, in it's perilous times, and there's going to be a great apostasy, and everybody's going to fall away from the faith. Nonsense. When Jesus said, straight is the gate and narrow is the way, he was talking about, he was speaking to the Jews, who had such a hard time getting to the into the kingdom because of Phariseeism. And they... <laughs> They were walking the way of the, the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, and that was the wide way to destruction. Narrow is the way. It means you've got to get rid of all that Phariseeism stuff. You have to give up a lot to do it. But it doesn't say anything about how many people are going to do it because scadzillions of people have believed in Jesus since that time. And Jesus gave those parables of the mustard seed, the leaven and the lump. Little tiny mustard seed grows until the tree is big enough to handle all the birds of all the nations. Little tiny Leaven in the lump, the bread expands, expands, expands. The metaphor, the symbolism, refers to the kingdom of God spreading all over the Gentile world, the world in which you and I live. A ransom for the few, it's a ransom for many. And I say this even though I believe in the elect and I believe in limited atonement. But I still believe that that atonement was given for a ton of folks, your Christian brothers and sisters, the elect. Thank God for it. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with the story of James and John trying to be big shots and the occasion of Jesus announcing for the fourth time he was going to be killed and resurrected there in Perea. We will continue with the Perean ministry, verse 46 of Mark 10 in the next audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.